Hi, everyone. Welcome to podcast number 116 with Fred G.M. Pietro. If you'd like to contact me, it's info at antiqueauctionforum.com. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy today's show. This podcast is sponsored by WorthPoint. Find out what your antiques are worth at worthpoint.com. I'm in New Haven, Connecticut with Fred GM Pietro. How are you doing, Fred? Fine, fine. How are you? And I apologize. It took me a little while to pronounce your name properly. I've known your name and of the pieces you've sold. I've seen your ads for many, many, many years of handling very fine things. And I'd like to know how you got started. What was your beginnings and how did you evolve into handling such fine pieces? Uh, I, you know, I grew up uh, in Cheshire, Connecticut. My parents you know, did not have money. Uh, they were very, very uh, sort of middle America, you know, ran a landscaping nursery. And when I went to school in Florida to study classical music, I met Kathy, you know, who we, we later got married. So in 1973, we found, I found myself at Stetson University in Deland, Florida, studying classical music. And one of my first dates with Kathy was uh, to an antique shop. Her family always collected. Her father was an artist, contemporary, is a contemporary artist, and uh, they loved antiques, and they used to rummage around finding stuff. So first date, we go to a place called Carousel Antiques in Deland, Florida, mm-hmm. next to the university, and I bought a Shaker Number no. 7 rocker. I, I don't know what came over me. I just loved the stuff. I loved the idea. That shop had everything from... Victorian furniture to vintage clothing to old tools to junk, and there was a shaker number seven rocker. And I so got, you know how to you knew how to spot something fairly decent right off the bat. I didn't obviously. know it was shaker. I knew nothing about shaker or what shaker was, but I took it home. You know, took it to some some antique dealer that mm-hmm. who I, I I respected or or thought I respected, and they told me what I had. And, Did it have the number seven on one of those? Had number seven on it, yeah. and it had never forget it had a broken rocker. And I probably had the rocker replaced, and I took it to the dealer, and they said, you did great, except you replaced the rocker. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I learned not to touch anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, wow. Right off the bat, right off the bat. first item. Right off the bat, yeah. first item, right. Yeah. So I'm down 70 bucks, day one. And yeah, yeah. So, and we bought, you know, I was very interested in all kinds of stuff. I was driven by our budget, of course, which was not a lot. Mm-hmm. We used to get cash advances on our MasterCard. Mm-hmm. It used to be called Master Charge then. So I used to go and I used, oh, to, yeah, I used yeah. to get Master Charge. I used to go and get 50 bucks or something like that. And uh-huh. we'd go out and we bought depression glass. And we used to we used to haunt old five and dimes and buy 1960s space toys that were still on the shelf and take them to flea markets and sell them. You know, buy wow. them for 89 cents and sell them for $8. It was that kind what of a, thing. What a nice thing for a couple to have together, a passion for doing this. It sounds like it just had... Yeah, we did. And we, we really learned it from a dollar up. I mm-hmm. would say we we explored that whole range uh, you can of materials. You lose a dollar when you're playing with a dollar. Right, that's yeah. true. That's true. Yeah, yeah. We graduated to auctions. There were auctions in Florida that had that they called box lot auctions, where there was mm-hmm. one good thing in every lot, and we would go through and find it and fill our VW bus up, go through it, set up at the Sunday flea market, 
Now, the auctioneer said that there was one good yeah, thing. Yeah, he did. He would say there's one good thing in each lot. We never knew what, what it was. <laughs> and we probably threw away some of the good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> but, but this just, was long before eBay when you could find yeah. out that way. And we just, yeah. just promised us, and we believed them. And, and, uh, yeah. and uh, we would go through, and we'd throw away a lot of stuff, give a lot of stuff away to some Goodwill or Salvation Army, and then set up mm-hmm. at the Dinner Key Flea Market at that point in time. That, now we're in Florida the next year. I mean, in Miami. The following year, and we set up there almost every Sunday. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you started in Florida, and then mm-hmm. you moved back here to Connecticut eventually. Yeah, right, right around I think our you know senior year, um, I was uh, had been accepted uh, to my graduate work at Yale in classical music, and I wow. I was in Norfolk in 1976 performing there. And I was staying up in Norfolk, and at that point in time, every chance I had, I would head up Route Seven. And this is about the time where I stumbled on Three Ravens Antiques, which was Harold Corbin. And uh, whenever I walked into that shop and saw the decoys and the Windsors and the painted furniture and mm. you know, apothecary yeah. covers, and it was just you know, brimming with all this you know, stuff to me that looked like it was just incredible. And he took a real uh, liking for my wife and I, took a, sort of took us under his wing and got us into the Hartford show, and from there forward, I was kind of his picker for a while. Yeah. Yeah. And I would run everything that looked like it was folk art by him. Uh-huh. <laughs> and he would buy a lot of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you were fairly young, and that's kind of what's a little bit lacking in this business today, not a whole lot of young people getting in it it's like hard. you did. Yeah, it's hard. I think, yeah. you know, you, you need money. You were able to get in the business with very little money. That's right. That's uh, one of the... And my biggest mistakes were, even if I bought something that was problematic, which I did often, inflation would always carry me out because in a uh-huh. winter chair that's been ended out it still has value. And prices were rising, so worse comes to worse, you hold on to it for 90 days, and the prices will catch up, and yeah. you can get your money back. Yeah, yeah. Now, when was you, would you say this was in the 70s? When was this? Yeah, it was, uh, exactly, it was in 76, 76. when I first met Harold Corbin. Yeah. See, back then, I was exploring the wonderful world of oak furniture. <laughs> one, of first was ever, one of the first things I bought yeah. was a collapsible oak high chair. Oh, yeah. I, yeah, I bought good. many of those. Yeah. yeah. They go down to a stroller yeah. or, or that, a rocker. A rocker. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. So we met back, I want to say, in the early 90s when you bought a, 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 just a fantastic Baltimore bench. Right. And um, It was actually probably, it might have been in the late 80s. Was it the late 80s? Might have been. I, I do remember, though, looking at this piece and... Um, Thinking one level, but you knew it was a much higher level than that. And that takes a real talent to learn these type of things. How did you know that was such a special piece? Well, I, mean, I think, you know, one uh, thing that I've always had going for me in a way, and I think I always approach something from its, from its weakest element, and I can't help myself. I mean, that's what I focus on. I never focus on... You know, I mean, I remember dealers used to say to me, wow, look at the great seat on that Windsor chair. But I would say to myself, yeah, but the back is ugly. They'd always say, oh, gosh, look at the great, you know, how tall the feet are on that chest. I said, yeah, but it's too wide. Yeah, wide. Yeah. And so I'd always, you know, the, the weakest element was always my baseline. Yeah. You know, so that's where I start. And that's my, my starting point from, from analyzing a piece of furniture, not mm-hmm. the best point. And, and when you have a, a really weak element or a really strong element, what you have is something that's out of balance. Right. 
Right. And that becomes problematic. This bank bench was not out of balance. Mm-hmm. It was beautifully balanced. It had a nice tall seat height, that beautiful tall back that just was just kept going. So you remember that going. bench clearly now? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's great. And it was, I remember that it was a large bench, but it was light as a feather. They, they just used just as much wood as they needed to mm-hmm. to make it strong. Did you ever attribute that? To I know it's it was Baltimore, right? I didn't. Yeah. Uh, I didn't attribute it. Um, mm-hmm. And I think at that point in time, very little work was being done with Windsor's. I mean, since then, Charlie Santori, I think, has done quite a bit of work. And probably now one could figure it out. <laughs> mm-hmm. I do remember, you know, my father telling me, you know, I learned a lot from my father uh, and growing up. And he always said, look at the weakest part of a painting. If you find something weak in a painting, the painting is only as good as its weakest part. And right. Um, so I, I think that's more or less across the board. I think it's across the board in everything. I think, you, you know, you can, you can go to a great concert of a string quartet, but if the, you know, if the cellist just, like, comes mm-hmm. in in the wrong spot, mm-hmm. well, there's not much you can do about it. You can mm-hmm. say it was great, but, yeah. uh, you know, or if you go have a great meal and it's, it's too salty or it's, you know, mm-hmm. or it's, you know, there's no great elements to it. Uh, I think it's uh, with everything. I think balance and is is, is a key key mm-hmm. to success with now, any material. You've, you've been in this business for this many years, and everybody is talking about the changes. There's mm-hmm. many many changes, and you seem to evolve. And I want to talk to you because now you're selling contemporary artwork. Yeah, we have uh, we, we run about ten contemporary shows a year in the gallery, which is open Tuesday through Saturday. Uh-huh. We represent 22 artists, contemporary artists, which mm-hmm. we have exclusive contracts with. And uh, it, it's for, for, for me, it's it's something I'm doing, but I always did it as a sort of a closet collector. Mm-hmm. I mean, I collected contemporary art alongside of collecting folk art all the way along. Mm-hmm. When we were coming up in the business, uh, as I said earlier, my father-in-law is a, is a well-known contemporary artist. Mm-hmm. So I learned a lot from him. Hmm. And I was buying and selling, you know, early modern furniture before anybody wanted it, just because I thought it was really? great design. So, so today I'm saying um, we're just gonna we're gonna start going more public with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also know that when we had our gallery in New York, uh, we did sh- show a couple of contemporary artists at the same time. So, yeah. I, so it's just, for me, it's the same set of tools. I mean, judging a contemporary work mm-hmm. is the same set of tools as judging. Folk art is very closely related because much contemporary art, especially abstraction, which is what we like, is one-off mm-hmm. expressions. Mm-hmm. And most folk art is a one-off expression. So every time right. you're judging a piece of folk art, it's a new experience for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not like a wind-up toy yeah, you know, or a collectible where there are multiples, generally. Right, right. Uh-huh. And um, do you deal also in large pieces? Lar- I think of a lot of you know contemporary work as really large canvases. Do you yeah. deal in all all kinds. Yeah, of we things? represent three of I think three or four sculptors, and some of that work on commission can be very large. Mm-hmm. It has to be built on site, and oh, like a metal uh, sculpture, uh, yeah, metal steel sculpture, outdoor mm-hmm. sculpture, and then we have uh, most of our artists' work ranges from it could be uh, six by eight inches to you know ten feet. Mm-hmm. Now, how, how far out of this New York City are we here? 70 miles. 70 miles. So I'm sure you get people from New York for your openings? You? We get people from everywhere. Um, you know, I, I, you know, it's, there's a big local community here. We have Yale School of Art here. Oh, yes. Okay. The Yale School of Art is, is, is probably the most respected school of art in the country and has probably spawned some of the greatest contemporary artists that have ever been. 
Wow. Uh, and mm-hmm. it's very highly regarded. And we and we do tap into that. I mean, one of we represent one of the the professors of painting at Yale. Some of the MFA, you know, graduates we represent. So we, we use that very much. Uh, and having you know, being a Yale alumni, also it doesn't doesn't hurt. So mm-hmm. that's sort of our springboard. I mean, that's sort of, again our baseline. We look at what's happening at Yale. We use it very much as a gauge of, of, of where the market and where the trends are going mm-hmm. because it's very timely. Yes. What, what's happening there, and it's right. It's a mile from here. Oh. Wow. Uh, yep. And this complex room, which is uh, called the Rector Square, which is the old A.C. Gilbert Erector Set Factory, houses 200 artist studios. This is a, yeah. an erect, the Erector yeah. Set Factory? Factory. Yep. How about that? So all above us, there are 200 artist studios, some some oh. very famous uh, artists who bring mm-hmm. six figures. In well, Connecticut has are, a lot are, of are great, all here. Always has had a lot of great artists. Yeah, so it's a great yeah. location. So this is really sort of a hotbed of, of activity for that, that kind of material. I mean, I, I did it for several reasons. I, I, you know, I went into contemporary because I really believe in it. Uh, I love the way it, it's juxtaposition with folk art. I see a lot of relationship. And from a pure financial standpoint, there's a lot of material, a lot of folk material that is owned by contemporary collectors. Mm-hmm. So there's really a, a, a real cross-pollination that occurs from a com- purely commercial, you know, dollars and cents standpoint. I, I've gotten some great pieces of folk art. From ex Yale professors, yeah, uh, they wow. bought folk art from me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I kind of I feel like I kind of do my own thing. I really kind of you know walk a little bit different line than most dealers do. Mm-hmm. You know, how I buy, where I sell it. Yeah, yeah. Now, do you do? I, I saw you recently at a show. Do you do a lot of shows per year? I don't. Uh, I don't do very many at all. I, I like to. That was a New Hampshire show. I like to go back there every once in a while. It sort of gives me a good feeling for what's going on in the market. Mm-hmm. I'd like to stay connected. Mm-hmm. To we're really so what I call the trenches of of, of Americana, where the the dealers, the pickers, you know, are coming mm-hmm. and going, and what's really happening. Mm-hmm. And you can learn a lot. I spent a lot of time just watching and what's what yeah. was selling, what wasn't selling, and why, because mm-hmm. that changes. It does. Um, yeah. Other than that, I do the Philadelphia Hospital Antique Show, mm-hmm. uh, which is a great show for Americana. You know, probably the the best show for Americana. And I do. I, I used. I, I used to do the Winter Antique Show. I did it for 21 years. I've given that up. Mm. Uh, now, last year was our last year. I'm now doing the Metro Show mm-hmm. in New York, and we feel as though it's a better fit for us. Mm. You know, with our interest in contemporary mm-hmm. and modern, oh, I see. Uh-huh. and sort of blending the two and doing going in there with that look rather than trying to do a pure folk art Americana booth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people are are talking about trends. You mm-hmm. know I mean. People always want to know what the next trend is. It's always no one has a crystal ball. Do you, in your opinion, do you see anything gaining strength right now? A lot of people talking about Asian, which may be slowing down a little bit. But do you see anything in the antique market like gaining right now? In the well, I, th- I think I think really what's happening in the antiques market is that the very very best, the very top one percent or two two percent, if you're mm-hmm. able to identify it. Mm-hmm. Is still bringing what it was or more, right? Yeah, but there are fewer buyers for it, mm-hmm. so it's very thinly traded. Mm-hmm. So that's yeah, right. Yeah. So so to find, to buy something for a million dollars and try to find somebody to buy it that a needs it, b likes it, and c mm-hmm. has the money at the moment. Yeah. Is, there aren't too many backups for those people. You know, you think of this. This is a pretty big country. Just say we're talking about American. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty big country, but I, I've had this happen recently. I had, I can't really talk about it, but there was this major piece 
and I was told by the expert that there's either two or three people in the entire country that'll have an interest in that. Yeah. I mean, and when those people get if those people get knocked out somehow by completing their collection or whatever it is. Yeah. It's true. I'll never forget. I, I uh, helped uh, put together a, a really significant collection several years ago, probably 15 or 20 years ago. And the gentleman who owned the collection was uh, the head of one of the biggest consulting firms in the world. And he had just sold it. And I never forget, I had a great carved piece and I called him. I sent him a picture of it. And at that time, I had to uh, FedEx a picture oh, yeah. <laughs> with a Polaroid. Uh-huh. And he called me back, and he liked it. And I, you know, I was being a little aggressive on the price, I must admit. And he was trying to say, Fred, it's, you know. And I was going on and on about it. He said, I want to t- say two words to you. And I want you to never forget these words about folk art mm-hmm. in your business. And I said, what are those? He said, thinly traded. Mm-hmm. He said, Fred, you always have to think about who's behind me. Mm-hmm. to buy this because I'm not trying to mm-hmm. get you down in price I'm not trying to do anything I'm just trying to, to, to tell you something about the market if you have one, two, three people behind me ready to spend this six or eight thousand or whatever it was at the time then fine but if there truly is nobody then to be fair to the customer you're selling it to you have to recognize that so if I'm going to ask you six thousand I better be asking six thousand or close to it to the person right behind him mm-hmm. if I'm going to drop it to three then it just isn't a fair value, and that stuck with me. Yeah. You kind of find that out the hard way at auction. You find it out the hard way at auction. You do, mm-hmm. you know, because the true the true value at auction to me is where the third person drops out. Ah, yep. So mm-hmm. if you have two, if you have three people bidding, now you're down to two, and they, they bring it up another hundred thousand. Yeah, that is why when something comes back at auction, it often goes for less. That's right, significantly. Yeah, because mm-hmm. it's that third person is long, no longer there. Then mm-hmm. it's it's really a trifecta has to happen for you know that to really occur mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know so and sometimes that that floor is quite low sometimes yep. you have two people hammering it out for hundreds of thousands of dollars mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and nobody under everybody scratching their head yeah yeah i see it happen even at low levels there was an auction recently uh, one of the uh, new hampshire auctions and there was just a very plain horse weather vane and it brought Three times what it was worth. It didn't make any sense. Hmm. But obviously, there were two retail people that wanted it. Yeah. And now, if yeah. it came to auction again, and rather than bringing 8,000, I might bring three or yeah. two. Yeah. I remember someone, um, this was a long time ago, I had a Hoosier cover. Do you remember the Hoosier mm-hmm. covers? I had one at auction, and it went for a ridiculous $2,500. And a guy said to me, he said, I have one in my home much better than that one. So I'm putting in your next auction. I said, well, it could have been a fluke. Well, his brought $250. Right. And it was better. So, you know, it's just these things, uh, you know, uh, can happen as a fluke. But I also, this brings something to mind. A lot of times people used to judge what something was worth at an auction by when the dealer would finally drop out and they'd hit it one bid above. But now that doesn't seem to come into play anymore. The internet. Yeah. Less dealers going to auctions. Right. You have to be pretty astute to, to follow that. Yeah. And I think that, that w- and I, I must admit, I did, I did that when I was really young and I first started mm-hmm. out. I would go to auction. I, I keyed in on this dealer named Ed Clerk. I loved Ed Clerk. He was a he dealt in Shaker. I don't even know if he's still around. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was this little tiny country sales. And mm-hmm. if he was there, I yeah. would bid on it one bit above him. I yeah. mean, I was, in the, I was in college. I didn't really know anything. Mm-hmm. And it was by sort of again. It was it was 
something for me to follow. So I think people do that, but you can get in trouble. Sure. You, you don't you don't know if somebody's bidding for a client and they have a big Absolutely. You're also taking that dealer's knowledge for granted. Uh-huh. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Yep. Yep. And it can bite you. It can definitely bite you. Yeah. There's no question. There's yeah. no question about that at all. I usually tell people if they want to gain knowledge, first of all, find a really good dealer, the respectable dealer. And a lot of dealers are willing to share their knowledge and tell you right. why something's really good. The only, the only real way, and there are a few exceptions to this, but the only real way to really amass a really fine collection is to put your trust in one or two mm-hmm. dealers, and preferably one. And a couple things will happen. <clears throat> you know, they'll, they'll eliminate all the problems. Mm-hmm. If, if that dealer is a very active dealer, you will get the first pick of everything that they get. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, yeah. So a lot of what makes it out into the into the world, you know, when somebody sets up one of the New Hampshire shows or uh, that's not the first run at a lot of that stuff for dealers. Mm. You know, a lot of their stuff, their, their prime fresh material that's sold to, to their collectors. Mm-hmm. So if you get in that, in that group and then they'll have your best interest at heart and you'll learn a lot. Now, is it on the other side of it, like a really good picker? Do you have good pickers out there? That- I do. I'm, I'm fortunate. I've, I've been very, Fair with the pickers. Uh, I always mm-hmm. share, you know, the profits fifty mm-hmm. fifty with them, and I've had that some. Sure, make some, some oil Yeah, some that. some pickers that have, uh, you know, um, been dealing with me for twenty five years or longer. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And I just sold a, I sold a piece that a, a picker introduced me to, um, twenty five years ago, and I and the people called me back directly twenty five years later. Wow. <laughs> And I bought it, and I sent him a check for ten grand. I mean, I said, "What's yeah, this for?" I said, "This is for that weather vane that you, on the barn yeah. that you showed me wow. <laughs> twenty-five years ago." He, he couldn't believe it. He, yeah, he refused. Uh, I said, "You're not going to refuse it. I wouldn't have gotten in there without yeah. you." That's very honorable. Yeah. And, uh, so I think that's just you have to do that because you know yeah. there are no secrets in this business. You try to get away that's with right. it once, and yeah, and then you, you know they, they, they may not. And, and technically, I didn't have to, but you know, then it just builds up sort of like distrust and. Mm-hmm. All that stuff and who needs it. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's right. Really? Um, what would you say has cha- I keep looking at that whirly gig you have over here. It's just really fantastic. Can you just talk about that piece real well, quick? Well, I think both the whirly gig, which is, you know, it's just a soldier whirly gig, and, and that flying horse weather vane, there's a, bit yeah. of, there's a bit of abstraction going on yeah, yeah. in the way they were conceived. And again, that's what I look for. I don't look for... Stuff that's terribly realistic. So mm-hmm. I, you know, I I, I try I try to, to see how it will hold up with a, a contemporary painting. I see. Uh huh. You know, so for everything yeah. for me is I never judge a piece of folk art on how it how it holds up against other folk art. Mm-hmm. That's meaningless comparison to me. Wow. Yeah. And and even in when people call you know have this piece of folk art, they'll call it a masterpiece. Well, to me, it's only a masterpiece if you could put it in a room with a masterpiece Tiffany lamp. A masterpiece of Albert Bierstadt, a masterpiece of Victorian furniture, and if it will hold its own in that arena, then it is a masterpiece. It's mm-hmm. got to be a horizontal experience. It's not a vertical. I mean, what does it mean if you know um, a rhinoceros horn cup is a masterpiece only in a world of rhinoceros horn cups? Uh-huh. I mean, it doesn't hold a lot. You have to. It's got to go out into the broader art world to see. And that's the true test. Mm-hmm. It's like comparing a Chevy to all other Chevys. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, until you get it on the road and compare it to other cars you could buy, you're not going to really know. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, and the fact is, if you truly get a great piece of, or what I call a true masterpiece, which I've had very few of, it's used as a sales technique by many people, and mm-hmm. um, that it really will hold its own. And when you get in, in a room with a Mark Roscoe painting, or you get in, in a room with a Goddard Townsend High Boy, mm-hmm. or a fantastic you know, Serape, 19th century Serape, or 18th century Serape carpet, or a you know first phase Navajo blanket. Every there's, there's there won't be a weak link in that group. Mm. Very interesting. And is that do you try to help people decorate like that? I do absolutely. Yeah, wow. yeah. So we you know the, some of the interiors that we've done where we've you know a few times we've done sort of you know soup to nuts where we've. Mm-hmm. Had a little bit of a hand in, in layout of the rooms and a little bit of a hand in cabinet work and the furnishing and carpeting and and wow. uh, and we, we do blend with uh, you know modern furniture, mm-hmm. early modern furniture, mid-century modern furniture, with folk art. And I try to get some contemporary work in the in there. Flat work that's always the toughest. Mm-hmm. They have to get people in there, you know, to get it in their environment. But it's a great you know oh, go, sounds, go with go with for folk art. It sounds like. Um, like a show house. I mean, you could just... Yeah, I mean, I've had this carousel horse sitting here for yeah. a month or so, and I've had various abstract paintings behind it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and every time it ha- I put one up, somebody goes, boy, does that abstract painting look great with that carousel horse? Well, of course it does. It looks a lot better than an Ami Phillips would look with it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Portrait, frankly. Yeah, yeah. In the same sense, a great Ami Phillips would look great with, a, you know, to me, with a Nakashima bench below it or, you know... Wow. Uh, a great piece of modern furniture. So I, so I love to, to mix mix the things. I'm not a purist yeah. in a sense that, mm-hmm. you know, it has to be sort of a, an authentic 19th century interior. Mm-hmm. I like the mix. That's how I, that's how my house is. Yeah. And has been for years. I like right. to mix it up. And, um, I think it makes it much more interesting, I think. And I think also from a standpoint of, of economics, it, it broadens your possible risk and gain. Absolutely. You know, you're broadening your portfolio, so to speak. So, mm-hmm. you know, 25 years ago, if you invested evenly in folk art and early modern furniture, I don't know where you'd be ahead. Yeah. 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 I mean, I'll never forget. And a lesson I learned with that is very early on, I was putting together a portfolio for somebody and somebody just reeled out this whole big stack of bill trailer drawings that I could have bought for $2,000 or $3,000 a piece. And I wouldn't put them in this portfolio. I said, this is crazy. Said, you know, mm. And that would have been the winner. Oh, <laughs> oh well. That would have been yeah. the winner. So, yeah. you know, so again, it's taking a few risks, yeah. you know, broadening your perspectives. Yeah. The thing we, uh, I've talked about many times on this with many different guests is if you don't really like something, there's no sense in trying to put it in as an investment in mine in your own collection. Right, you know, you do. You, you do have. To, I mean, first and foremost, you really do have to respond to it and love, yeah. and love it. I mean, I mean, my my feeling is that people buy more than they should buy. You mm-hmm. know, they should buy fewer and better. And I think they're they're, they're driven to do that because they're not satisfied with what they're getting. Mm-hmm. Fewer. Uh, yeah, that's another thing we talk. I've talked about many times too. Is you're much better off buying the one good item than right. ten so-sos. I've recently talked to somebody, a collector, about this Denzel carousel horse, and she was just crazy about this. this. Yeah, uh-huh. and she's just crazy about this horse. She, you know, and I said, "Do you know anything about carousel?" She goes, "Yeah." I said, "I have eighty carousel horses." I said, "Eighty carousel horses." Uh-huh. 
I said, but nothing like that. And she just couldn't. Th- so there you go. You know, so uh, maybe she wouldn't have needed numbers 32 through 80 <laughs> if she had anteed up and bought. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. so, my theory is that people spend the same in their collecting life, whether they buy five things or 50 things or 500 things. Or, mm-hmm. you know, it takes a little bit of financing, a little bit of working with dealers to really stretch and however you have to or sell things or trade things in. But I try to get people to buy less and buy better all the time. Mm-hmm. I might have a very healthy dealer trade. So I sell the dealers every day almost. Mm-hmm. You know, dealers come by here. They bring stuff to me. I sell things to them. I get, you know, I advertise in all the yellow pages buying estates. So I, right, right down to 1940s mahogany furniture. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'll buy all that and I know where to go with it. What I'm seeing with is folk art, but I, I use that as sort of a, a way to get access to other pieces. Mm-hmm. That's from the dealers who may specialize in oriental rugs. If they get to an estate where there's a cigar store figure, they'll think of me. Yeah, yeah. The really good ones, we handled one the other day that did very well. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's funny, it was like the next one down sold for a third of the price. It didn't look that much different, but this one just had couple things going on that really made it yeah there's, there's a there's a full range and then every once in a while you know i've i've had i've sold cigar store indians that people have been offered you know close to a million dollars for wow and you know it's because wow. they were just like they had all the bells they and had all the bells and whistles yeah. in a great a great condition so it's you know I, I mean i think as you know you know seeing as much stuff as you see that you know something that, that top 10 percent is where all the money is i mean another great dealer told me that mm-hmm. i said the top 10 percent is for all you yeah. know something could be 10 percent better but be three times as much as expensive yeah. yeah same with the masterpiece work for art you know i mean it's the same thing across the board again right. i mean you can get a you know take a weather vane that's been painted black and you can take the same one that's got an extraordinary verdigris patina Mm-hmm. And one goes for eighteen hundred, and one goes for one hundred and fifty thousand, yeah. and that's just yeah. the way it is. Yep, yeah. that's just the way it is. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, I have an upcoming guest. I was just talking. The reason I'm down here, Polly Bergen, the mm-hmm. actress, um, is an upcoming guest, and I was really amazed. She bought her collection in the '60s and '50s, and it's absolutely fabulous. The items that she has, and she said not one time did she ever buy because she thought something was valuable. And it's very, I mean, I just have, she, some people just have the ability to have the eye. They do. And I, and I think direct, you know, I call that kind of decorating with antiques or decorating with folk art that people live with it in their, vi- in their environment and, and, and more so than as a collector per se. Mm-hmm. 25 years ago, you could find some great things doing that. And some of the greatest yeah. things I've ever owned have come that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, today it's a little more difficult to go out and do that. Do you think there's still a lot of things out there that just have not been discovered, like major, let's say folk art? You know, it still happens. You know, I had to say, in, in the last uh, two years, I've had two things. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe three years. It's been three years I've had two things, both both of which were undocumented, mm-hmm. you know, both of which were, you know, extraordinary pieces. And I'm always surprised when it happens. Yeah. So it, it still does happen. Now, I, I don't know if you can recall one single piece, but is there something that stands out in your mind that you say is the, your favorite piece you've ever owned? That would be tough. I mean, you know, sometimes it's the story that surrounds it. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's the way I, uh, I got it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, there are, probably a, there are probably two or three 
I mean, I think there is a um, uh, a pottery bust that uh, of a black man that I uh, used to belong to the great collector William Greenspan, and I think that's one of the greatest things I've ever handled. It's now mm-hmm. in a collection in Washington State. Really? Um, I think um, you know the Isaac Nutman still life, the great Isaac Nutman still life. Uh, to me, uh, is one of the is a true masterpiece, mm-hmm. and it's one of those the few masterpieces that I would say that I've handled uh, mm-hmm. over the years. And you know, today, it, it would bring as much as, as uh, the great Indian weather vane that Jerry Lauren brought. It might bring five million dollars. I, I don't know what wow. it would bring today. It's just one of those pieces yeah. that you know extends out of this category. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I, you probably can relate to this feeling that I get sometimes when when I see something really extraordinary and I'm discovering it for the first time, it's only a little bit of it that has to do with the value and most of it has to do with how rare and wonderful something is. Is that, do you feel the same way? Yeah, yeah, there's no question about it. I mean, generally, frankly, you know, when, when I'm, you know, dealing with something that's very valuable like that, it's always on a consignment basis. So usually my... Mm-hmm. You know, I'm out of the loop, essentially. I'm, I'm making a fee, yeah. you know, to handle a piece like that. Um, so it's generally not about the money. Mm. I mean, uh, in some instances, it's been really about helping some uh, churches or other institutions that really needed money desperately. And mm-hmm. so it's, you know, wanting to do the right thing for them. And, you know, hopefully you make a few bucks yeah. at the end of the day, you know, mm-hmm. when, when you do something like that. But, yeah, no, it's, it's not generally driven by its, quote, its pure value. Yeah. If anything, it just to me, I, I don't even like it. It just limits the playing field. Mm-hmm. I mean, once you cross a hundred thousand in folk art in Americana, your, your numbers drop down to just a handful of possible buyers for these things today. Now, would you say that the buyers for that type of thing are they are they in an age group that will be actively buying for time to come, or are they older people? I think I think actually a lot of those people are finished buying. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think they have mature collections. Not that they're not buying, but it's very difficult when you've been selling somebody great things for twenty years. Mm-hmm. It's hard to find that piece of the puzzle that might be missing that you know improves the collection. And I always say that to them. This is our our our, our goal here is adding a piece and improving the collection, not diluting the collection. Yeah. Yeah. So you add something that's secondary or tertiary to something that's already great, and now you've sort of lowered the standard overall. Mm -hmm. So finding that piece is very difficult. I I think the future of this business, um, and it'll probably down the road, is that it will be the people who collect other things Mm. that really want a prime piece of American folk art, that value Mm -hmm. it in their collection of whatever they collect. Mm -hmm. About the baby boomers. What do you think is going to happen when eventually all the collections come back on the market? Do you think, do you think it's, again, like you were talking about earlier, the, the really top 10% is still going to be solid? And do you think we'll see a shift in... So you mean by baby, baby boomers, the people who are like around 60 now? In their 60s and yeah. when they start selling and, and, and simplifying. and You know, I, what, what I see happening is that there's a lot of bad material being sold. There's a lot of fakes. There's a oh, lot yeah. of overly worked material. There's a lot of resurfacing going on. There's a lot of stuff that isn't even American. Mm-hmm. You know, it's... You know, and that dilutes the marketplace. Sure. So if, if, you, if you have a weather vane that's worth $100,000, mm-hmm. 
And then you see, you continue seeing them at auction because they're popular, bringing 15, 20, 15, 20, 15, 20, and they've got major problems. Mm-hmm. It starts saying, throwing sort of like a disconnect in this whole thing. What is it really worth? And does, and, and does that collector who might pay 100000 do they start getting gun shy to say, gosh, you know, if I pay 100 could it really bring fifteen? They don't really know what's going on. Yeah. So the, and the, it seems like there's a lot of this in weather vanes. I hear about the weather vanes many times. Certainly weather vanes, but all, all, all areas of folk art. I mean, I had a collector recently that sent me a picture of this carved mermaid. He was so excited about it. He just got his polychrome mermaid. Hmm. Well, I knew exactly what it was. was it, you know, I see them at Brimfield. So I, I, I went to Brimfield, and I took a picture of a 8-by-8-foot eight crate. It was 8-foot by 4-feet by 8-feet crate, mm-hmm. stacked with these, sticking out what's made in China, stamped all over the box. Oh and I sent the picture, and they were $90 each. Wow. And he paid, I think, 13000 for this. Oh. See, that, that when you hear something like this, you yeah. know, that, that's someone who may not ever collect again. Right. You know? So what happens, they get, they get really get soured. Yeah. You know, to the collecting, and yeah. it's a shame, and it really does dilute the business. So I really think it, it, the jury's out on what's going to happen, and I, mm-hmm. I am concerned about that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's one thing, you know, having something restored that's basically a real piece. The Indian that you're talking about that you had at auction was restored; it was repainted. Mm-hmm. It's still a real Indian. Yeah, yeah. But mm-hmm. I could show you pictures of scratched Indians that are made in Bali right now. That are really good really until good. you turn them over wow. and, and know what the wood is. Know that it's not, you know, this monkey pot is not. A little bit lighter. Fine, a little bit lighter yeah. or a lot heavier, <laughs> one or the other. Yeah. So yeah. It, it's, it's those things that, that it, it's hard to know. And I, mm-hmm. think, I, and I think it's why if you look at, you know, Sotheby's Christie's who have, quote, Americana departments, they're sort of combining them with other departments because I don't think they can find enough really quality material mm-hmm. um, to go yeah. through. So I think that the, the, the jury is out on how that goes. I guess there'll always be a very small group of people who will run with that flag for you know, you know, nuance. Mm-hmm. So this has been really wonderful talking to you today. Yeah, thanks Thank for uh, including me. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for your time. So this is Martin Willis with Fred G.M. Pietro, and we're signing off. This podcast is sponsored by WorthPoint. Find out what your antiques are worth at worthpoint.com.